the Bible study. I'll pray for the Bible study and you pray for me. Heavenly Father, as we once again open your word, we pray that as we read through that you would help us to come to a clearer understanding of who you are and maybe, Lord, what it is that you would want to say in our lives today. And so, Father, as we take this chapter, as we work our way through this, this chapter, uh, which might be a little awkward for some, that we pray, Father, that you would take it and you would reveal yourself and that you would grow us in you, that we would adjust to who it is that you are and, and maybe change some of the perception that we might have had concerning uh, just maybe who we thought you were. So be here with us now. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, one of the things that uh, you've known and you've heard me say is that you and I are working our way through the book of Genesis. And what I love about the book of Genesis is it's so incredibly practical. There's practical application in every chapter. We're about to begin some of the most fascinating stories in the entire Bible as we, as we work through. Now today, it, it's a story, but it's more something that God would want us to know here in 2007. And so... Um, as I get into this, I was reminded of a situation that occurred when we first started the church. The church was very new, and just a couple of people were here. And a man called me and said, would you have breakfast with me? And so I had breakfast with him. And, and he sat there for about 45 minutes just telling me about how awful his wife was. And, uh, and uh, the man is sitting right over... No, he's, he, he doesn't go to... He doesn't go... Like, is it me? No, no, it's not you. He, he doesn't go to church here at all. And, and uh, he, he just laid it all out, just laid it all out. You know, my wife is this and my wife is that. And, you know, we've all heard that before. And it was when he was finally done and I had a chance to say something, I, I just simply said, you know, um, I hear what you're saying, but, but what, what I'm reminded of is that the Bible says that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. To which he looked at me and said, and I quote, well, that's your interpretation. To which I said, um, I didn't interpret anything. I just quoted it. And, and many times what will take place is that we have a perception about God and we have a perception about the way that things should be. And we come to God with an interpretation of who he is. And so today what I'm going to do is I'm simply going to read and say what it says. And uh, as we do this, we're just going to, you know, just see, Lord, what is it that you are saying here? Because we might find that as we do this, that God might be a little bit different than some of our perceptions of who God is. That makes sense so far? So today, I'm, I'm going to make you a promise. You ready? I promise you that each and every one of you today, before you leave here, you will be thoroughly offended at some point. So, I want to keep my word. So here we go. Uh, today we're going to look at what's called, uh, again, this is not a, a, a neat story of God. This is just God saying, Here, here's how I see it. Here's what I want to say. So it's going to be a little bit more on the teachy side rather than, than the storytelling side. However, if uh, you tune out, I want you to know that the chapter ends very interestingly with uh, a really good guy getting naked, drunk, and passed out in his tent. So uh, tune in. It will get interesting at least at the end. So at least uh, you'll want to stick around and find out how that turns out. So... We have in the Bible, there are different times when God comes and he says, I want to give a covenant. And in this covenant, this is how it is. And so you'll recall he gives Adam a covenant and uh, he tells Adam to be fruitful and multiply. But, you know, there are certain things in his covenant. God will come to Moses and he'll say, I'm going to give you the covenant and that's going to be for the Jewish people. Jesus comes and says, I'm giving you a new covenant. And that new covenant is going to be for all eternity. 
But today, you and I are going to see a covenant that God gives to Noah and to all of Noah's descendants throughout all time. Now, is there anybody here who is a descendant of Noah? Every last one of us is a descendant of Noah. And so that's going to be interesting. So the first thing you're going to want to write down is that this will be God's covenant to all people. All people. And I want you to notice verses 8 and 9 of chapter 9. He says, Then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, Behold, I myself do establish my covenant with you, and you want to underline, and with your descendants after you. So that's you and me. Uh, you and I come from Noah. Noah will have three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And from them, the whole, whole, world, the whole world will be populated. And so we'll see how that works out. So uh, another thing I would want to say, even before we get into this, is that this is a covenant for all of the descendants of Noah. Shem will be the descendant that will become the Jewish people. And so when you hear somebody say they're anti-Semitic, they're actually saying they're anti-Shemitic because that's where the word comes from. And so this is not to Shem, Jewish people, you might say. This is for the whole world, including Ham, Japheth, and Shem, all the descendants of Noah. So you want to write this, you want to write this down. We have to remember that Noah's not Jewish. And that'll be important because this is not really part of, of the Jewish law. This covenant is given, and you want to write this down, before the law of Moses. This is a covenant that would be given before the law of Moses. It's not really part of that covenant. This is more the history of a covenant that takes place before. Moses will come on the scene some 1,000 years later. Moses will give a covenant. And this covenant, because it's to all the people, uh, it will be, um, you know, it, it will not just be for Jewish people, it will be for all people. Make sense so far? Okay, now the next thing we're going to notice is that this covenant is going to be for all time. All time. I want you to notice in verse 12, and you're going to want to underline, God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I'm making between me and you and every living creature that is with you for, and then underline, all successive generations. Um, one translation will say everlasting generations. Your translation might say it a little bit differently, but the idea is this is from now until the end. Then notice down in verse 16, he says, when the bow is in the cloud, speaking of the rainbow, and we'll look at that when we come to it, then I will look upon it and remember the everlasting covenant, underline that, between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. So this this, um, this covenant then is for all time. So when does this covenant end? Well, very quickly, this covenant, apparently, according to verse 16, God says, I'll look upon the, my bow that I'm going to put in the sky. So this covenant will be in effect, and you want to write this down, until there is no rainbow. So is there a rainbow now? Absolutely, absolutely. So our story picks up, and Noah is off the ark. Noah will be the one to repopulate the earth. He is a descendant of Adam, as you and I are a descendant of Adam. And Noah and Adam have quite a bit in common. Uh, first of all, they're both made in the image of God. They've, they will both receive a covenant from God. Both will receive a mandate to be fruitful and multiply. Both will wind up being farmers, as we'll see today. Both will sin. Both will see their sin result in what you and I might call shameful nakedness. Both will need their nakedness covered. 
Uh, Both will have three sons that we know their names of. Two of the sons will be pretty good, and one of the sons is going to do a terrible thing. So there's a lot of similarities. So today we're going to look at three things in particular at this covenant as we travel through this chapter and uh, then wrap up with a very interesting story. Verse 1, we pick it up in chapter 9. He says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, underline this, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And fill the earth. So God's, God, it says that he blessed him. So God's covenant begins with a blessing. He says, In this blessing, Noah, I want you to have a bunch of kids and, and multiply and fill the earth. Now, it's this verse, for those of you who come from a Roman Catholic background, it's this verse that the Roman Catholics look at and say, This is why we do not use birth control because God has called us to, to be fruitful and to multiply. And we trust they would say, in a God that calls us to multiply and that God promises to take care of those of us who follow him in that covenant. And so many times our brothers and sisters in the Roman Catholic Church will trust God in a way that many times we as Protestants will not. And so we'll look at that as we come to that because God's going to talk about that a little bit more later on. Verses 2 and 3, he says, every, well, verse 2, he says, the fear of you, And the terror of you will be on every beast of the earth and every bird of the sky with everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand, underline, they are given. Into your hand, they are given. Underline that. Every moving thing. I want you to underline all of verse 3. Every moving thing that is alive shall be food for you. I give all to you as I gave the green plant. It was back in Genesis chapter 1, verse 29, that God says, I give man every green plant to eat. Here in this chapter, he says, not only do I give every green plant to eat, but you can also eat all kinds of meat. Now write this down. This is where it gets fun. Uh, God declares, God tells us that meat is a gift to be enjoyed. Can I get a witness? And God declares here in Genesis chapter 9, the beginning of barbecue. <laughs> and now, maybe you're here today and you're saying, but, but I'm a vegetarian. Well, I want you to know that we at Calvary Chapel, we love vegetarians too. I love vegetarians. After all, if we all ate meat, what would happen to the price of meat? So you continue on <laughs> eating vegetables and, uh, this, you know, we just want to uh, just love you and, and uh, so... God looks down at the earth and he says, you know, meat's given now for you to eat. Apparently God knew that cows would be high in vitamin steak and that's important for our diet. And so he says, you can, you can do that. Now, why, why am I, why am I uh, spending time on this? Because we're going to notice in this that God thinks about animals and humans very differently. People are made in the image of God. Animals are not made in the image of God. And so God declares that there's a difference. It's it's not that we are all animals and that humans are a super animal. God says that there's a difference between the two. I regard one very differently than I regard the other. Later on in the Bible, God will come to the earth. His name will be Jesus. As a Christian, we believe that Jesus is God in the flesh. That's the dividing line between Christianity and every other religion. Christianity holds that Jesus is God. Every other religion holds that Jesus is not God. 
as Christians, we believe that Jesus is God. It's interesting, when Jesus will be crucified on the cross, later he'll be raised from the dead. He will come back to his disciples. He will find them fishing in the morning. He will call out to them. There on your outline from John 21, 5, it says, Then Jesus saith unto them, Children, have ye any, and you want to underline, meat. Underline that. And, and the, the reason is that apparently Jesus is saying, you know, it's, it's okay. Peter will jump in the water. He will swim back to shore. He will come up to Jesus. And it goes on to say that Jesus is frying, literally, fish there on the coals. So apparently Jesus is a meat eater too, which is good. Um, now, the reason I say that, because um, there is a website called JesusVeg.com, which holds, and you can go there, JesusVeg.com, and they say that Jesus was a vegetarian. The logic goes like this. We know that Jesus was always compassionate and always merciful. Now, because of that, if Jesus was always compassionate and always merciful, then it would also follow that Jesus would have to be a vegetarian. So that is the logic, and you can check it out and see if I'm, if I'm telling you the truth. But it's interesting to me that God says to Noah, to those that would follow him, to Shem, Ham, and Japheth, to all, all countries, he would, say, he would say, go ahead and have a barbecue. Now, I, I find it interesting because after Jesus has this incident with the fish and he's eating the fish and cooking the fish, Paul, some several decades later, will talk about something that's going to happen in the life of those who would profess to be believers in the time that you and I would call the end times. It's a fascinating little verse. There on your outline in 1 Timothy, Paul says, Now the Spirit, speaking of the Holy Spirit, speaketh expressly. I'm reading out of the King James Version, so um, it, it might be a little difficult. That in the latter times, I want you to underline the word latter times, some of your translations may say last days, end times, at the, 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 the end time. Some shall depart from the faith. What will they be doing? They will be giving heed to seducing spirits and the doctrines of devils. So they will be departing from the Christian faith. They will be, which meant that at one point they were part of the Christian faith. Now they are listening to a seducing spirit and what the Bible calls a doctrine or teaching of the devil. Make sense? What is the teaching of the devil that they will be listening to in the last days? Well, it's interesting, he says, and commanding to abstain from, what's the next word? Meats, which God has created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. And so Paul says in the last days, People would depart from the faith. They will think that they're honoring God, but they'll really be listening to seducing spirits and the doctrines of demons, as it says. And part of their message as they do this will be that you need to not eat meat. And uh, so let's don't listen to that message. In God's eyes, the taking of an animal life is very different than the taking of a human life. God is pointing out that humans are created in the image of God. Animals are part of God's creation, but they're not created in the image of God. If you go to PETA.com, People for the Ethical Treatment of Animals, on their website, you can, you can look this up, their leader or their founder, Ingrid Newkirk, has said, and uh, listen to this, when it comes to pain, love, joy, loneliness, and fear, a rat 
is a pig is a dog is a boy. A rat is a pig is a dog is a boy. Now, interesting, the, the idea is that we are an animal, like animals. We're all in the same playing field. And so we have to then re- respect that. And that's why they would say we don't eat animals. And, because we're really all the same and we're called to, to care for that. So a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy. So if you're driving down the road and uh, you see a rat run out in front of you and you can swerve to, to miss the rat, but that's going to mean running over a little boy, you really have to choose which one that you would want to run over. And so the people for the ethical treatment of animals would say, well, since a rat is a pig, is a dog, is a boy, they're all equal. And so whichever one you choose to hit, well, it really doesn't matter. However, in Christianity, and if you don't know this, the rat always loses. <laughs> that makes sense? Good. So that's, that's the deal. Now, what, what does that mean? Well, Does that mean that that we abuse animals in any way? No, it just means that God does not see them as he sees humans. The Bible also says this. There in your outline, it says Proverbs 12.10, a righteous man has regard for the life of his animals. So meat is given to be enjoyed. You're not more spiritual if you eat meat, but you're also not more spiritual if you don't eat meat. And if you're doing, if you're not eating meat because you want to honor God, then you're honoring him in a way that he says is not honoring to him. So uh, you, you choose. Well, verses four, did that, you know, that makes sense so far? Good. All right. Now verses four through six, notice he says, and again, this is a covenant that's given for all time. It's an everlasting covenant till the rainbow goes away. He says in verses four through six, he says, only you shall not eat flesh with its life. Uh, And you might want to underline that. That is its blood. Surely I will require your life blood from every beast, I will require it. From every man, from every man's brother, I will require the life of a man. Now, it makes a lot more sense in the Hebrew, but fortunately, he says the same thing again in the next verse, and it clears it up. Verse 6, he says, whoever, and I want you to underline every line of verse 6. He says, whoever sheds man's blood by man, his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God... He made man. So there's a couple of things as we unpack this. In verse 4, he says, verse 4, he says, Only you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. Now, here's what he's saying. You can eat the meat, but you got to kill it first. And there's some wisdom there because sometimes it fights back. But the idea is that, that... you can eat it, but you need to make sure that it's fully dead. Some would take that and say that you have to drain out all the blood. And certainly there, there's a, a legitimate argument for that. But the, the idea here is that you make sure that the blood's not flowing. That is, it's fully dead. Verses 5 and 6, he says, Surely I will require your lifeblood, and from every beast I will require it. Now, God has been talking about how animals and humans, one is made in the image of God, one is not. If the dog comes over to the house uh, across the street and mauls the neighbor kid, you put the dog to death. That's what you do. If the kid goes over and he bites the dog, you don't put the kid to death. It's, it's, it's different. And uh, hopefully that's not new revelation for you. So in this everlasting covenant, notice the next verse on your outline where it says Genesis chapter 9 verses 5 and 6 from the Living Bible. He says, and murder is forbidden. 
Man-killing animals must die, and any man who murders shall be killed. For to kill a man is to kill the one who made, the, the kill the one made like God. So, in this everlasting covenant, number two, in this covenant, in this everlasting covenant, God mandates capital punishment for murder. If somebody goes out and kills somebody, they are to be put to death. We're not talking about self-defense. We're not talking about war. God says that human life is sacred to God, even life that is in the womb. We're not allowed to just go out and kill one another, and this is the beginning of capital punishment. So God says if you go out and you do that, it's the responsibility of the government, as we'll see later on, to step in and say, since you have taken somebody's life, Before God, you now forfeit your life. And so that's where that comes from. So the person who murders is to be put to death. God wants murderers to be put to death so that human life will be respected. You'll recall a few weeks ago, we looked at Cain killing Abel. Was Cain put to death for for his crime? And the reason he was not put to death for his crime was because the law had not come into place at that time. A thousand years later, this will be ratified by the law of Moses. After Moses, in the time of the church, the Apostle Paul will write on this. And in Romans 13, I've put it on your outline, Paul says this. Every person is to be subject to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God. And those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God. And they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you not want to have fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you will have the praise from the same. For it is a minister of God to you for good. That is, the authority is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil... Be afraid. Now, underline this part. For it does not bear the, what's the word? Does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God, an avenger who brings, what's the word? Upon the one who practices evil. Now, here's what Paul says. Paul says we have to obey the government. We need to do good. Uh, We've got to obey the laws as best we can. The government is a minister of God, and that government will bring wrath. Wrath, Paul tells us, is brought by the sword. The sword is not something that you use to issue a traffic ticket. That makes sense? The sword is only used for one thing, and that is ending human life. And so Paul says that the government has the responsibility... And as the government has the responsibility, it uses the sword specific in order to accomplish being a minister of God, what needs to take place. So, a sword was only used for capital punishment. That makes sense so far? Now, what's also interesting to me is that when Paul says this, who is the Caesar on the throne at this time? His name was Nero. Write that down. Why is that so important? Because Nero was one of the greatest persecutors of the church that the church has ever known. And Paul says, but the government's still ordained by God, and you still got to follow the rules. If God's rule is higher, you got to take that road. 
but you still have to follow the rules because the government's there to maintain order. Now, you and I live in a time where people think, and you can go on the web to to find this out, think that they are honoring God by not eating meat. You and I live in a time where within the church, we feel that we are honoring God by standing against capital punishment for murder. And, and God says, no, it's just the opposite. And this is a perpetual covenant. It's an everlasting covenant. And it's here until the rainbow goes away. So um, God says, you know, that teaching does not come from me. Make sense so far? Now, if I haven't offended you yet, get ready. Because the covenant goes on. Are you ready? All right, here we go. Verse 7. <laughs> Verse 7. As for you, now with your pen in hand, I want you to underline a couple of things, a lot of things. As for you, descendants of Noah, those who come after Shem, Ham, and Japheth, who are part of this everlasting covenant, until I come back, till the rainbow goes away. Those of you who are here today, here's what he says. As for you, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly, and multiply, in case you missed it in the first part of the sentence, multiply in it. Ready? In this everlasting covenant, Number three, God tells us, he says, as for you, as for you, be fruitful and multiply. Populate the earth abundantly and multiply in it. How long? Till the rainbow goes away. Till the rainbow goes away. Now, I believe that the further a society moves away from honoring God, the more dishonor you will see within that society as it relates to God. God says in this everlasting covenant, what I'm telling you to do in verse 7 and in verse 1, I'm telling you to make sure that you are fruitful and multiplying. Now, why would God tell those of us who follow him specifically to make sure that we are being fruitful and we are multiplying? Well, it's an interesting thing. All the way back in the book of Malachi, God says this. Here's why God tells us who embrace this covenant, choose to multiply abundantly and be fruitful. God says, you were united to your wife by the Lord. In God's wise plan, when you married, the two of you became one person in his sight. Underline this. And what does he want? What does he want? Godly children from your union. Therefore, guard your passions. Keep faith with the wife of your youth. Now, here's what he's saying. We are the representation of God and what it means to be godly in this world. It's interesting to me that those who claim to have a biblical Christianity, who will claim to say, I I love and honor the Lord and, and God is, you know, I'm in, will come to me and they will say, but you know, I just don't have the desire to have children. 
I want you to notice, and I'm not going to go too far with this, and, and uh, I won't bring it up outside of here, but, but I'm talking and you can't leave. And if you do, everybody's going to look at you and know you're offended. So you're going to feel awkward, so I, and I get to do this. So people will come in and say, but I don't have the desire. There's nothing in this chapter about the desire. There is two times when God says, I want to bless you, and here's how I want to bless you. I want you to be fruitful, and I want you to multiply. Some people will come to me and they'll say, but you know, I want to do some things with my life. You know, I got stuff going on and children will hinder me. They'll tie me down. I won't be able to do those things. Well, here, here's what God says. I want you to be fruitful and I want you to multiply. And, and I want you to do that. Here's why. Because kids are going to be an amazing tool that God uses in your life to teach you very much about him. He's going to teach you much about walking with him. He's going to teach you about discipleship. He's going to teach you about sacrificial love. He's going to teach you about trusting God to provide for you. Because when you have kids, they never make sense on a balance sheet. Hopefully I haven't misrepresented that truth. And so God says, I want you to do this. This is my plan for you. Because in this, you're going to have to depend on me. Some people will come up to me and they will say, you know, I think it's wrong to have all those kids, so many kids. I just, you know, all these kids out there, they don't have a home. And I think that instead of having kids, you know, you should be out there adopting kids as opposed to having kids. And now, now, understand, here's what it says. God says, I want you to multiply. I want you to be fruitful. Two times he's going to tell you to multiply. In two separate verses, he's going to say the same thing. This is my plan for you, those of you who follow me. Now, I know it's going to mean that you're going to have to trust God a little bit more than we like to as we multiply, but God says, this is my plan for you. For those of you, this is my covenant with you. Now, I'm not going to sell that too hard, but, but some will say that, and they'll come to me and they'll say, you know, you know, I just think it's better. You shouldn't have your own kids. You should just go out and adopt because there's all these kids. And, and inside, I don't say anything, but, you know, I've adopted two, and everybody who says that to me is somebody who's adopted zero. By the way, if you're new here, we've got seven small children in our home. So uh, we've been busy. <laughs> and and so, so when it comes to being fruitful and multiply, and when it comes to, to adoption, my, my, my hope, my heart to you as a church would be that you do both. You do both. Because it's not about self-fulfillment. It's about becoming everything that God has for you to become. And sometimes that involves a little bit of sacrifice. But you know, as I look at my kids, and there are seven of them there, it's not like I look at them and go, you know, I wish I would have never had you. I just, and which one do you throw back? Every last one of them is wonderful. So, again, I'm not going to, to push that too, too far, but uh, I've probably offended you. Did I offend anybody yet? Now, if you're nervous now, I want you to know there is an exception to this, okay? You ready? Here's the exception. Jesus gave an exception to this. God bless to us the reading of his word. There are eunuchs who were born that way from their mother's womb. There are eunuchs who were made eunuchs by men, and there are also eunuchs who made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. He who is able to accept this, let him accept this. And here's what God's saying. You know, if you're so sold out to the kingdom, you're so sold out to ministry, you're so sold out to being, to going and being everything that God has you to be, you're giving your life to that. God says, and, and you're sensing that you need to be a eunuch for the gospel, then I understand that. The apostle Paul did that. And so you have not only Jesus saying that, but you have an example. 
But most of us don't stop having children because we're eunuchs for the gospel. We have it because we're selfish. Selfishness and Christianity, do they go hand in hand? Are they like the Reese's peanut butter cup? So if you're praying and you're evaluating, consider that. Consider that before you say, you know, I'm not going to have children because I just want this. Now, how many should you have? I don't know. We've had seven. We think we're done. We'll see. We'll see. And, and I'm not saying that birth control is wrong. Um, and I'm not saying that you shouldn't be thinking about these things. I'm just saying this is an everlasting covenant. God says my plan for you is that you you're multiply and you, you're fruitful. And he cares enough to say it a couple times in this so you don't miss it. Make sense? Verse 8, then God spoke to Noah and his sons with him, saying, Behold now, I myself do establish my covenant with you and with all your descendants after you, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, and all that comes out of the ark, and every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you, and all flesh shall never again be cut off by the water of the flood, neither shall there be again be a flood to destroy the earth. It doesn't say there won't be uh, local floods, but no more worldwide flood. Verse 12. Then God said, this is the sign of the covenant which I'm making between me and you, uh, between me and you and every living creature that is with you. For all successive generations, I set my bow in the cloud, and it shall be for a sign of a covenant between me and the earth. It shall come about when I bring a cloud over the earth that the the bow will be seen in the cloud. And I will remember my covenant, which is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And never again shall the water become a flood to destroy all flesh. Again, not talking about a local flood, but, but no longer a worldwide flood. When the bow is in the cloud, then I will look upon it to remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. And God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant which I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. So apparently, this covenant is going to be in, uh, is going to be in effect until, until uh, the, the bow is gone. But you and I live in a time, as I said, where people believe that they are honoring God by not eating meat. God says that's not part of my thing. Some people will say, I, I disagree with capital punishment for, for murder. God says, that's not my thing. And some people will say, but you know, I don't want to have kids. I don't have a desire. And God says, that's not my thing either. And so I would encourage you to read and consider and uh, see if God might be saying something to you. Now, if I haven't offended you yet, it's probably because you come from a very particular um, theological and political spectrum. And uh, so I want you to know that I'm now going to offend you. (laughs) So, verses 18 through 21. You ready? 18 through 21. Now, the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Again, the Shem, the Shemites, we'd say Semites. Ultimately, that would move to the area of the Middle East. And then uh, out of that would become the Jewish people. Abraham will be a few hundred years later. And uh, he will be the first Jewish person. And then when you say anti-Semitic, you're actually saying anti-Shemitic, which is where that comes from. Ham, we'll see in the next chapter, will travel down to the area that you and I would call Africa. And Japheth will go to the place that you and I will call Europe. 
And so we'll see how that plans, how that uh, pans out. Verse 18, now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham was the father of Canaan. He wants us to know that Ham has a son. Ham's son is Canaan. And so when Israel later on will go into the land, the promised land, that will be the land of Canaan. And, uh, and you'll, you'll uh, remember what needs to take place then at that time. These were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was populated. So apparently they took the covenant fairly serious. Verse 20, then Noah began farming, just like Adam did, and planted a vineyard. Well, he drank of the wine, became drunk, and uncovered himself inside his tent. I love this verse. You know what I love about the Bible? I love about the Bible is that the Bible, unlike every other religious book that's out there, the Bible always tells the truth about the people in the Bible. And so here, Moses, who, or Noah, who's a godly guy on this day, does this. Now, it says that he's, he's drunk, he's naked, and he's passed out. Some suggest that this is evidence that Noah was, in fact, a true NASCAR fan. And uh, so you, you decide. <laughs> Some commentators, I don't say and I hold that view. But I, I love the, the fact that the Bible tells the truth of, I love the fact that the Bible tells the truth about people in the Bible. And, uh, you know, coloring books don't tell the truth. And for those of you who have kids, you've had the Noah and the Ark coloring book and, you know, it has some great pictures in there, like the great picture where God comes to speak to Noah, you know, and he's like this, listening to God, and you've got the lines coming down, and that means it's God's voice, and you color that in, and God speaks to Noah, you know, and God says, build an ark, and the next thing there, Noah's pounding away, and you color that in, and he's being obedient. It's a very cool thing. And then you've got the, the picture where you've got him chasing the animals into the ark, and he's doing this, you know, and they're kind of running in front of him. That's a great picture. And then the rain comes down, you know, and Noah's there with the umbrella and uh, you know it's a wonderful picture and you certainly had your kids picture uh, color those for you and uh, then there's the great one that I love you know they're in the ark and and it's not raining anymore but there's Noah and he's looking outside got the giraffe sticking its head out the side kind of looking around water everywhere lots of colors in that picture and so that's a good picture and then you've got they've landed on the ground and there they are on the mountain and the door comes open and here comes all the animals outside, you know, you wonderful picture, here they come. Some of your more biblically-based coloring books will have the next thing where Noah, the first thing that he does is he, he builds an altar and he offers a sacrifice to God and he's being very reverential to God and, you know, you color that in. But what's interesting to me is there's never this picture of Noah getting drunk and naked in his tent in any of the coloring books. I, I, I don't know what to do with it. You know, it's like arky, arky, yes, but drunky, drunky, no. We don't put that in the coloring books. So, just a point of theological interest. Now, Noah, as we've seen, is a godly guy. He loves the Lord. And as we just went through the pictures, in, in chapter 6, he finds grace and he hears God's voice and he's, he's obedient to God's voice and he works for 100 years building the ark. He's, the New Testament calls him a preacher of righteousness. He goes through a difficult time on the ark. You know, he's kind of boxed in, can't move around. Wife hasn't had a shower in over a year. It's a difficult time. 
And, and here, at this point, we find that Noah, when he comes off of the ark, he, he gets drunk. Now, a couple of the things you, you want to know about this, Noah comes off the ark and he plants a vineyard. Now, as he plants the vineyard, the vines grow, and so this is probably a couple of decades after he actually comes off of the ark. So uh, it takes time for, for those things to grow. And uh, in this time, he makes some wine, and apparently on one day, he decides to have a glass or two, maybe three, and maybe four. And uh, he goes uh, inside the tent, and he's naked. And, and uh, you know, what's interesting to me as I read this is that the Bible never mentions Noah as doing anything wrong. And, and I just find that fascinating that, that you and I read this in 2007. You've got great sermon material, but the Bible doesn't say anything that Noah does anything wrong. Uh, it could be that it wasn't a rule at that time, and that's true, uh, that's true, but right now you know that, that drunkenness is sinful. And uh, yet at, at that time, apparently drunkenness, you know, I, I, don't, I don't know. It just doesn't say anything. Now, the Bible never says that drinking wine or alcohol is wrong. That is something that people began to say about 150 years ago, mostly in the United States of America. Uh, Jesus' first miracle was turning water into wine. God refers to his people throughout the Bible as his vineyard, a vineyard. What do vines grow in vineyards? And what do you make with those grapes in that vineyard? Grape juice. (laughs) And 2,000 years ago, before refrigeration, how long did it stay grape juice? Not too long. Did they have a harvest time all year long so that they could have perpetual grape juice? Or did that grape juice turn into the W word? Now, it's interesting to me. God refers to his people as the vineyard. Only in the past 150 years has it really been an issue. And if you have a problem with alcohol and you're somebody who struggled with that, you need to never have a glass at all of any type whatsoever, ever. Make sense? But within the church, it's interesting to me. There was a guy named John Calvin from who, uh, if you call yourself a Calvinist, it comes from John Calvin. If you come from a Presbyterian background, he would be the one who kind of got that whole thing going. And so John Calvin was a pastor of a church, and part of his compensation package each and every year was 250 gallons of wine in order to be enjoyed by him and his friends whenever he had people over for dinner. His church said, they went to the Bible where it says that wine makes the heart merry, and they wanted to have a very merry pastor. (laughs) Martin Luther, from where the Lutherans come from, As he broke away from the Catherine church, he married a girl named Catherine. Catherine, her thing was brewing beer. Martin Luther would write letters when he had to be away speaking somewhere else. He would write letters back to her. He'd say, I miss you. I miss your embrace. And what I miss most about you, Catherine, is I miss your wonderful beer. So that's an interesting thing. So... Um, without, throughout the church, it's never been an, an issue. It became an issue in the United States of America, specifically about 150 years ago. You say, well, Pastor Dan, what's our position on this? Next verse. No. <laughs> the Bible says that drunkenness is sinful. 
The Bible says that gluttony is sinful. And, and it's sinful, but it doesn't say having a glass of wine is sin. It doesn't say having a drink is sin. However, the Bible does tell us to obey the law. The law of our country is you have to be 21. So if you're not 21, it's not God's will for you to have anything at all. The Bible tells us to act in love. That is, everything I do needs to be done with a heart of love. So if I'm with somebody or you're with somebody and they have a problem with alcohol, either they've struggled with it or they have a conviction about it because you and I would want to operate in love, we would say, well, we're just not going to do that now because we don't, we don't want to do anything that's going to offend somebody. So we'd want to act in love. Paul, interestingly, in the book of 1 Corinthians, addresses a problem where Christians are coming to church and they're drinking a little bit too much at church. And he says, don't do that, because that's not what church is for. So Paul would write and he would say to Timothy, he'd say, you know, if you're going to have some guys and they're going to become leaders within the church, they can't be addicted to wine. One place he would say that they can't be addicted to much wine. He never says, don't, but there's a great case for be careful. And so you pray and you discern, and where the Bible is clear, we want to be clear. Where the Bible is not clear and where the Bible gives freedom, we want to give freedom. Peter would tell us to make sure that in our freedom, we don't use it as a license for sin. Make sense? Because some would hear this, and they would then take that as a license to go be sinful. So, okay, let's move on. We're running out of time. Unless you want to talk more about wine. Verse 21. Then Noah, Noah began farming and planted a vineyard, and he, and he drank of the wine and became drunk and uncovered himself inside his tent. Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. But Shem, Ham, but Shem, and, Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it upon both the shoulders and walked backward to cover the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned away so that they did not see their father's nakedness. Now, it's interesting because um, Ham has an opportunity on this day. He sees his dad, who's been a godly guy. On this day, Noah's probably doing what no Noah should do. He's probably acting in a way that he doesn't typically act. Ham sees it, and he uses it as an opportunity to come and expose it to his brothers. He finds that one day he amplifies it, exposes to the brothers. The two brothers act in love. They walk inside with a blanket. They walk in backwards and they cover their father so that they don't expose him. One seeks to expose, the other seeks to cover and conceal. Notice what the Bible says. He who covers a transgression seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates intimate friends. Verse 24, he says, When Noah awoke from his wine, he knew what his youngest son had done to him. So he said, and you want to underline, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants, so he shall be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. Now what's going on here? Well, I want you to notice something, that Ham is the one who does this, but the curse is upon Canaan. Everybody see that? Here's what you want to write down. The father sins, and it brings a curse 
on the sun. And Noah says, cursed be Canaan. That's a little awkward in the English. If you go in the Hebrew, it's a little bit more nimble. Let me give you uh, what, what it's saying. He's not so much coming out of the tent and seeing his son Ham and saying, cursed are you, grandson. That's not the intent. What he is doing is he's coming out and he sees what his son has done and the attitude that's involved in that, the heart that goes with that, how you want to take something that God has done so wonderfully in Adam's life and on his down day, you want to not correct him and say, say or Noah, you, want to, you don't want to correct him and say, uh, no, what are you doing? But what you're doing is you're saying, I've got this on him and I'm going to take it out and I'm going to expose him to my brothers and he's going to feel like a real idiot. Noah comes out of his tent and says to Ham, Ham, do you realize that what this attitude does, what what this heart is really about, and do you know what this does? This brings a curse on your son, Canaan. How does it work? The father sins, but the curse comes upon the child. What Noah is saying, and you want to write this down, is that my sin affects others. Here's what he's saying. Ham, because you've done this, because you're the dad, that you act like this, this is what's going to happen in your child's life. In the same way, alcoholic families, don't put your stuff away, this is important. Alcoholic families tend to produce alcoholic children. Children that come from abusive families tend to become abusive adults. The parents sin, but the children wind up with the curse. Does that make sense? Now, Canaan, because he grows up with this dad, seeing this heart, lives out what he sees. He becomes the land of Canaan. So that when Israel comes into the land, they are so sinful and so corrupt. And God gives them, and we'll see as we go there, 400 years to repent. And they can't. They're so evil that God has to say we have to wipe them out. Because they've gone beyond. All because he grew up in the family of a man who acted this way. Now, what's the point of all this in our situation? Dads, some of us are living ways, in ways that are causing our children to be cursed. We are doing things that we think won't matter that may be bringing a curse into the lives of our children. Because as Ham does this, what we see in Canaan's life is it's so much larger. So dads, you're casual about your walk with the Lord. You know, you, you come to church on occasion, you, you, you know, you, sometimes, you know, you, you participate in things, you know, you don't really serve, and, and your children grow up, and you want them to go to Christian school because you want them to get it, something that you're kind of casual about, just know. As the father, the curse comes on the children. And dads, if you're casual with your walk with the Lord, just know. The likelihood is this, that that child, as it grows up, is going to take your casualness about God and multiply it. And so where you attend occasionally, they won't attend at all. Of baby boomers, it's 40-some percent who go to church. Most are very casual about their faith. Of the generation that's coming up, 3%. 
will go to church. Your decisions about your health care in the next 20 or 30 years will be made by a generation where only 3% go to church. Because one generation is casual, it brings a curse on the next generation. Dads, I want to live my life in such a way where I don't want to go beyond what the Bible says. I don't want to use anything as a license to sin. I want to live my life in such a way that in 20 years, as I look at my children, I I don't say, you know, what I did really brought a curse on my kids. I don't want to look at them and say, you know, I wish I would have been a little bit more in tune with my walk with the Lord. I wish I would have been a little bit more committed. I wish I would have been uh, the man in the family that I needed to be pointing the way. I don't want to look on and say, I really, when it's all said and done, brought a curse on my children. Does that make sense? Good. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, right now, I just, Lord, for the dads who are here today, as as we've seen, we, we don't really have time to talk about it and all of its implications, but there's enough that we get the understanding. And Lord, right now, as dads, I would pray that each and every one of us, as we evaluate our life, Lord, that we would, we would maybe even right now, by the, your spirit, you're speaking into our lives in such a way that you're saying that this is something that's going to bring a curse into the life of your child. And Lord, I pray that each and every dad, if there's something that you're speaking, that they would recognize that they would deal with and they would live their lives in such a way that they wouldn't find themselves like Ham seeing their child grow up and become probably one of the most despicable people that the earth has ever known. And it all begins with us dads. And then, Father, I pray for those of us today who, who as we just traveled through this chapter, as we saw that you've given us an everlasting covenant and and your perspective and and yet many of us even in this room have embraced something other than the covenant that you gave to be an everlasting covenant until you come back that maybe in this time you've spoken to us and said we need to adjust something here and for those i pray father for each of us who, who have sensed that today that we would be willing to hear your spirit and that you would guide us that you would be the holy spirit as you claim to be in our lives so that we hear you and not the opinions of others as you speak to us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.